Burma's podcast of Five Pillars of Mad Monarch production. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, dear brothers, sisters, friends, and the foes out there. And welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers podcast with your host, Dili Hussain. Today we have a special guest. I've not abandoned the word special, I think I've come to terms that every guest is special. Uh, today we have a molecular geneticist by profession, uh, but she's most well known for her activism and her campaigning for anti Islamophobia, uh, anti racism, uh, and human rights. And that is Sister Sahara Al Faifi. Salam alaikum. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you so much no, thank for you. having me. No, thank you for coming on. Um, how's your journey here? Alhamdulillah, it's good. Two hours, uh, not far from Cardiff, and I had some. Uh, I met some people yesterday, I was in a conference, so yeah, it was worthwhile to come to London. You know, travelling around, because I know you are a very busy person, uh, yeah. especially when your diary and your events are generally public. So I yeah. am literally seeing every other day that Sister Sahar somewhere. is somewhere <laughs> doing something, mashallah. Yeah. Yeah? But travelling as a Muslim woman in Niqab, yeah. especially in the UK and broadly speaking in the West, yeah. um, do you feel safe? Hmm, I travel a lot a lot um, and abroad and in the UK and sometimes alone actually most of the time alone do I feel safe um, most of the time no but I don't let this uh, affect me or you know control my life in a way I mean I feel safe but I always have this idea that I can be attacked anytime any day and that's why my psyche, I'm always cautious, always wary, always looking around, always asking questions. Mm. Um, and as, as a, just as, as a way to protect myself. Uh, but I shouldn't. I shouldn't actually in the first place. But yeah, it's, it's, it has become part of my psyche. If I'm in the train station, is to look around. Uh, if if someone abuses me, I have to, you know, make sure that I know mm. how he looks like. So I report to him and things like that. Or sometimes I have to change routes uh, or Sorry. directions uh, and so on. Uh, but yeah, or sometimes I have to be always in touch with my parents, telling mm. them where I am and sending them messages or like a live location, all you, of this. You yeah. were once doing an interview, if I recall, not too long ago with the BBC and a man walked past yeah. and he insulted you whilst you were doing this interview, right? Correct. What did he say to you? Uh, you're an effing bomber. You're an effing bomber. So he looked at the camera and he said it. Yeah. And that was whilst you were giving an interview about Islamophobia, Exactly. Right? SubhanAllah. And yeah, yeah, it was shocking. So let's put aside the open insults and and the the worry of actually being attacked. What about the microaggressions, the looks, the, yeah. the corner? Do you get much of that? I do. Yes, I do most of the time. But daily? He, oh, yeah. On a daily basis. Yeah, definitely. Um... And I, I don't, I started to not care anymore. But at the same time, if I can strike, if I can strike a conversation yeah. after one of these locks yeah. and just to break down these barriers. So I tend to do that. So if I'm in the train or, you know, sitting next to somebody, I would actually start to have a conversation with them uh, and so on. But yeah, I do get that. Uh, uh, but also people, people uh, you know, judging you before applying for jobs mm. just because of your foreign name or because I wear the niqab and things like that. And I remember <clears throat> I applied before I got my job in uh, in Bristol as as a geneticist. I applied for at least forty NHS jobs, mm. and I 
go to the interview. I get shortlisted to every single one mm. and I go to the interview and I don't get the job. And it was only the time when I had to take off my niqab for the purpose of the interview. Yeah. I got the job straight yeah. after. Uh, but that tells you that there is actually not only microaggression, but there is um, an institutional discrimination against mm. anyone who looks uh, different. Mm. So yes, it, it does exist. It does affect every aspect of my life, sadly. You said that, you just said to me that, you know, you used to care when people used to get these yeah. looks. So let's rewind back to that time. When, yeah. when, how, what does that mean when you used to care? Why did you used to care? Why did you stop caring? I was, oh, because I was naive. I didn't understand why. Like when I, when I was young, you know, in university and people abusing me, calling me names in, in my way to university, it used to hit me so much. I used to cry a lot. Like, why would they call me this? Why do you, why do they see me as, as one? And uh, it was very difficult to go through because you know you're not that person mm. and you just want to, you know, go to uni and study and things like that. But then as, as I grow and as I understand the multi-million pound Islamophobia industry out there, mm. as, as, as much knowledge I have about, you know, the colonialist discourse mm. around mm. the niqab, around women and things of like course. that, I it's it's knowledge that made me uh, don't care about it anymore. And in fact, actually, it made me even more, uh, more, uh, more adhering to, to, to my faith because mm. of this constant reaction against me. Like I always ask the question, you know, why am I wearing it? Is it not easy just to take it off? And, you know, my parents always sometimes they tell me this. My mum had to take it off. So that was um, my next question. I'm glad you yeah. raised it. So did it ever pass <laughs> your mind? Has it ever passed your mind? Does it still pass your mind ever to consider perhaps adopting a different hukum on this matter? Yeah. And perhaps taking the niqab off and adopting just the hijab and the jilbab? Yeah, yeah. Which is the more of the mainstream position, even though, right. even though the niqab is a legitimate but one would argue that it was. Has it ever passed your mind to, you know, maybe it's just easier just to take it off and adopt another hukum? Oh, yeah, definitely. Especially when my parents are worried now. Mm. They feel that um, I can be attacked any time now because, you know, Islamophobia has been normalized by people in power like Boris Johnson and that trickles down and it becomes part of your life. Um, and you see your mother who took it off for the same reason, safety, just safety. And yeah, of course I had these doubts like, Sahar, just take it off and make your life easy and enjoy it. Mm. But I feel that this actually is my jihad, mm. is my struggle, mm. uh, that because Alhamdulillah, I'm outspoken. Um, um, I communicate my message, I believe, well to, mm. to, to the wider community. Uh, and I feel that if we protect the niqab, even if you disagree with it, and I, I agree, I agree that it, it's a minority opinion. Oh, no, it's a legitimate <clears throat> opinion. It's legitimate, it's but legitimate it's a minority, opinion. right? Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying those who don't wear it is that they're committing sin or, or any of that. No, yeah? no, I mean, I mean just, just to, just to I, w- I want to clarify this for our yeah. viewers, uh, and I've said this in talks all the time, that, you know, when there is an ikhtilaf on a particular matter, even yeah. if the even if the position is one of the school and it's a minority opinion, we need to defend it as if it's a position we adopt. Yeah. Do you understand? Exactly. So, sister, 
places where hijab and jilbab should defend the niqab as if it is wajib for them as well because yeah. it's a ruling that our sisters follow so so that's something for our viewers and listeners to think that okay because i don't wear the niqab or burqa i don't need to defend it yeah because i believe it's a minority opinion that's yeah. that's i don't think that's the right way to go about it no, we, we, we should agree. we should we should defend its legitimacy as if we were wearing it our own yeah but you, of course and and you know and i see a lot of support from hijabi and non-hijabi sisters because ultimately is is a freedom of choice you know mm-hmm. if i decided this is my active devotion to god this is what makes me sincere uh, this is what reminds me mm-hmm. of him that increases my taqwa my consciousness mm-hmm. of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on mm-hmm. a daily basis and i believe that i will be rewarded for it every second i'm wearing it mm-hmm. you know that is my jihad and if i'm outspoken for it mm-hmm. Um, then I could be part of this struggle against Islamophobia because those who are attacking the niqab, they only attack it because it is the easiest mm. thing to do. The most, the most easiest and visible. And visible, right? Yeah. But if it, it opens the door for so many things. You know, of if course. you're banning the niqab today, you know, it could ban different uh, religious rituals eventually in the future. So even if you don't believe in it, Um, it, it is part of the freedom of choice. Mm. It's a freedom of individuals. And from that perspective, I think a lot of, even a lot of my friends who don't share my faith mm. or atheist even, mm. they support my choice because they know that I'm doing it for me. Mm. It's not like some man out there forced me to, to wear it mm. uh, according to the Islamophobic narrative out mm. there, you know? Um, you mentioned that when you started gaining knowledge about uh, the colonial discourse yeah. uh, about the niqab, especially in Algeria, I oh, must say. Algeria, it played a key role where the French had landed exactly. and they saw that many, the vast majority of Algerian women were in niqab, right? Correct. And a massive campaign started about uh, westernizing their dress code. Exactly. So what is it do you think Uh, that affected the French so much so, yeah. yeah, about the niqab, which is affecting many ardent Islamophobes today. What is it about the niqab, do you think? Is it the fact that we don't, they can see us, but we can't see them? Or what is it? So I think the best uh, uh, post-colonial uh, sociologist who wrote about it is Franz Fanon. Yes. Uh, if I'm pronouncing his name right, in his book uh, called uh, Veiling Algeria, I think. And he mentioned something along the lines, because also this is an- another interesting thing that you hear about, that the niqab is a Saudi invention, right? <laughs> it's a Wahhabi invention, yeah, yeah. right? And it's not true, because Muslim women used to wear the niqab that covers everything even before the Ottoman Empire came to power. Even during the it, Ottoman Empire. <laughs> <laughs> if you see pictures of Bosnia and Albania during exactly. the Ottoman period and they were like you can say Sufia Hanafis right <laughs> yeah. they should wear the niqab exactly. if you go to Bangladesh where my parents are from you go to the marketplaces everyone's in many women are in niqab yeah, yeah. so this again another lie that it's a Saudi Wahhabi medieval yeah. Arab dress exactly it's, it's nonsense it's absolutely nonsense yeah. but in that book he says that The French colonialists, they had access to everything in Algeria, right? Access to the resources, access to the governors, access to uh, authorities, to the treasures of of this country, Mm. except one thing. The women. The women, right? And that frustrated them. Like, how on earth this woman can walk in the streets, sees everything, but we can't see her. 
And because of their superiority mindset that they had and they own the land and what's on it, mm. they feel that they should own the, the women, women too, yeah. right? And this is the kind of colonialist discourse that came about and still, sadly, is propagated nowadays using different terms yeah. related to Islamophobia. Mm. So the truth is like a lot of women in North Africa, a lot of women in the Arabian Peninsula used to wear it and used to frustrate the colonizers. So if anything that uh, motivates me to wear it, you know, obviously is an act of devotion to God, but mm. also... I want to get these Islamophobes angry, mm. right? I really, you know, you don't have access to me. It is my choice. I'm wearing it. And and you have no say in what I should wear and why I shouldn't, right? So it's a kind of a, 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 a legal middle finger to Islamophobes, yeah? Uh, <laughs> okay, no, not necessarily a middle finger, but, but kind of... Yeah, 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 yeah. It's true. Fair enough, fair enough. Gives me so much joy. Sorry. So, so it is, you see it as a daily form of izza and resistance, essentially. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So, so we've established that you are a very busy woman, mashallah. Um, but when you are so busy, um, you know, with activism, with campaigning, um, you know, there's also a kind of established, perceived notion of what a woman's traditional role is in Islam. So if you study the Nas of Islam, the Quran, the prophetic statements, you'll see there is an overwhelming emphasis on a Muslim woman or a Muslim man, uh, being a mother, being a dutiful wife, right? Not exclusively just those two things, but there is an emphasis, quite strong emphasis on those two particular roles. If you don't mind me asking, Sister Sahar, are you married? Am I married? <laughs> I'm not married. Uh, I'm not single either. Okay. <laughs> so you will be married. So you will be married soon. <laughs> no. Uh, you know what? Um, there's an interesting concept I came across maybe a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you agree with it or not, uh, but it, one of the actresses came with it. Uh, Emma something. Yeah. You know the one in Harry, Harry, uh, oh, so, Harry Potter? Oh, um, I'm self-relationship. <laughs> she said, yeah. Self-partnered. Self-partnered. Self okay, so oh, you've adopted that, yeah? No, not, well, I kind of like it, but not really adopting it. Okay. Uh, but because the moment you say that you're single, there's a stigma with so it. And then you have to answer the following questions. So are questions. you self-partnered at the moment? Well, I kind of like it. Okay. Like, you know, I, I am um, I'm happy if I'm married and I'm happy if I'm not. Okay. You know? If you ever become married, yeah. inshallah, and do you see your activism and the volume of activity that you're doing decreasing? So well, I believe that each life stage has its own priorities, mm. right? Uh, because I don't have children, my priority now is a lot of to do a lot of community activism mm. with social justice campaigns and, mm. and things like that. But if if I you know started to have my children, naturally, naturally, my children will be absolutely my top priority because they will be then the form of activism. Wouldn't your husband be and top project? <laughs> of course. Okay, Okay. Nice. Why are you asking no, these questions? You, 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 spe you, you specified the children. No, no, so what, what essentially I'm trying to get at is if, if a, 
you know, I know some sisters. I, I know many prominent sisters who are in the da'wah scene, who are in, involved in activism. And they are also married and have children. And naturally, you notice that once uh, marriage and especially motherhood takes over, that that's th- natural. Th- yeah, th- there's not an immediate stop, but there is a decrease of yeah. activities and output. But what I'm saying is, if someone persisted, if a sister who's involved in activism or dawah, especially public engagement and stuff like this, do you foresee a conflict emerging at some point if? She persists on I want to carry on with the volume of output whilst trying to sustain I don't a marriage think it's possible. I don't think it's possible to carry on the same volume like because if you have your children and, and your husband, then you you will have to balance. Mm. You know, if you were to focus on your activism and leave your family neglected, Islamically speaking, this is not right, right? We we know one of the uh, Islamic concept, al-aqrabuna awla bil-ma'roof. Those nearest to you are the most worthy of your benefits, so. right? So that the benefits should be first to, to, to the family, to, to the nearest to you, mm. before the community or before your activism. I don't think it's possible. And I haven't met any, <laughs> you know, women activists who get married and persisted and end that, you know, it just each life stage has its own uh, priority and it's all about life balance. Okay. Yeah. You, you know, um, I, I don't know how it is within Arab communities, yeah. uh, but I'll tell you something about South Asian communities uh, okay. who, who make up the majority demographic in the UK. Okay, yeah? cool. Bangladeshis, <laughs> Pakistanis, Indians. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, you know, within our communities, uh, with this whole kind of notion of, you know, busying yourself with activism, with studies, with seeking careers, etc., etc., uh, we find ourselves in, I'm not saying it's, it's definitely not right, but it may not be entirely wrong. I don't know, and nor do I want to get shot down once this podcast is released. Be careful. I just want to be very careful, <laughs> right? But there is a, a, a growing, uh, at least in my community and, and those surrounding Bedford in the local areas, mm. uh, sisters... Uh, have busied themselves, right, um, for rightful reasons, whether that means that they are the sole breadwinners of their families, they need to support their families financially, whatever it may be. They've reached a particular age in life uh, where it's becoming difficult to find uh, prospective spouses, right? Uh, be it, uh, I'm not going to put an age to it, again, I don't want to get a uh, thing, but th- th- there is. A, a be careful. <laughs> Okay, mid, okay, well, okay, okay. mid thirties okay. seems to be a worrying line within the Asian community, I'm saying. I don't know about, I'm not commenting on that on Arab, Turkish, Kurdish, African yeah. community. I'm talking about the Desi community. Once a woman kind of reaches between 30 to 35 and she appears to be unmarried and it becomes difficult. What's your, what's your thoughts on this? Does it exist within Arab communities? Is there a particular? Does it age? exist? Uh, does it exist in the Arab communities? Uh, like an unwritten, unsaid. I, I don't think as much as in this uh, Asian communities, but ultimately, it's not about you know marriage should not be linked to a certain age. You know, you could get married at your twenties. 
but then your life becomes hell because you selected the or you chosen the you chose the the wrong partner right mm. uh, and you can get married in your 40s and and you have the happiest of marriage mm. marriages right so i don't think it has anything to do with age as much as you're going to spend your life with this person mm. and I, i agree with you sometimes the career uh, can take over uh, the priorities of of an individual but All, for me, it's it's about making sure that this person is willing to share my mission, mm. right? I don't want to get married to someone who will be an obstacle that I have to overcome on a daily basis, right? Someone who believes in in my mission, on the things that I do, then I don't mind if, even, even if I get married in my 50s, right? I don't want to get married to anyone for the sake of it. So I think it's problematic to encourage people to get married for the sake of marriage. So why does it exist then? Why, 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 does, why do these kind of unwritten, unsaid age, ages, red limit ages exist? Why do they exist? Why do they exist? I think the social norms, right? If, if you know, back in the days, it used to be if you're in, in your 20s and not married, that you're too late. Mm. And now this is shifting more because uh, a lot of women now are, are going into career, taking career paths and being involved with different things. And, and the age is, is, is shifting. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm not an expert in this, to be honest. But you're but, a geneticist. I am a geneticist. So let me ask you something. Then. <laughs> I, 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 and I don't, I don't know if this next question will be is actually relevant to a geneticist, but I'm going to try because of my because I'm a miskin when it comes to medical issues, right? <laughs> no, I can tell you're a miskin. <laughs> he told me, is this something to do with cells? Yes, my friend. <laughs> okay, you're not, you're not supposed to say that. Okay, so could is there f- women's fertility is that linked to age? <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, d- d- uh, no. Oh, would like if the, the, if the older you are is it less likely that you are able to that's could, natural okay so, so that's could, natural so, so but could, <laughs> could, could, could the social stigma then be or that age could that be linked to that uh maybe okay i really don't know okay maybe okay fair enough on the topic of but this is nothing to do with genetics no, no that's what that's why i asked you whether it was relevant or not because <laughs> okay. c- 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 you could have maybe said it maybe it is <laughs> yeah. actually no because you deal with hereditary and genetical stuff right if something's passed on yeah yeah exactly yeah. okay cancer genetics yeah, yeah. I, d- i have nothing to do with I, d- i don't know how I, f- I, d- I, d- i don't know about how i feel about just asking that question but i i think that could be an issue okay i think it could be an issue that there is a conception i don't but know but you can get married <laughs> 49 years old and have a child. Oh, that's from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But there is a perceived notion that, yeah. that the older a woman is, that the less it, likely it less becomes... Less likely, but I don't I don't think this is applicable in Asian or Arab communities. Like, maybe also for genetic reasons. Like, hmm. it, 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 you can you can still have children, even in, in your late 40s. And, and this is happening until, you know, today. So, yeah, ultimately, I'm, I'm not an expert on, on this. There seems to be an assumption, um, one that is can be easily substantiated uh, from the kind of alliances that have emerged, that the left, or what's perceived as the left, are the, some, the natural allies of Muslims and their causes. And that's just not restricted to the UK. You can say that about Canada, with mm-hmm. the Liberal Party and Mr Trudeau. You can say it about the Democrats as well. 
And we're seeing this as well in the UK, especially with this upcoming general election, that the left or the Labour Party seem to be the natural allies of the Muslims and their causes. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that? Not in all cases. No, definitely. Because we know what Tony Blair has done before, right? We know that... Uh, the the war in Iraq in two thousand and three started was labor. during yeah during, prevent was labor of course Mo prevent was labor two thousand and five it came Co about contest was labor most uh, most most of the draconian laws that you are campaigning against yeah were established by labor definitely right? yeah, and the Tories definitely. and the Tories that either came along amended it tweaked it enhanced it made it worse but it's essentially it's the basis was set by a labor government correct right so should there be an automatic assumption and is mr so, corbyn a nice enough man to just assume that you know not, what is not about assumptions here uh the left themselves are quite diverse within themselves right you've got the the left to right uh people uh sorry left to center also the center uh, yeah left the centrist. To, uh, center yeah centrist uh you've got people who are like tony blair now who who who's got his own group now mm. who, who are almost right-wing mm. people under the red banner right uh and you've got still the left lefties and the far left and all of that so it's a spectrum you know when you look at the labor party the members of the labor party they sit on a spectrum yeah. and this is the difference here jeremy corbyn is seen to be left, at the left left, left left right tony blair is center right left, left center right left, center left or more even right right yeah? of course yes more right i'm glad you mentioned the spectrum yeah. so we have just to reiterate for our viewers we have uh, the kind of center right left which is yeah. the blair rights right yeah. and and those who are still pro-war neoliberals sure. not that much different to Correct. the the center right of the tory party let's yeah. be realistic about True. it yeah so obviously you know there is a concern that mm. you know when muslims seek alliances with the left uh, or those groups that are kind of very active in the spaces of islamophobia mm. anti-racism and so forth that knowingly or unknowingly we end up adopting certain values mm. uh, that when you scratch beneath the surface can appear to conflict with islamic uh, values and it's the islamic ethical framework mm. uh, do you understand that this could be a legitimate concern yeah definitely totally understand that can be a legitimate concern because it is concerning if you are part of a movement and you don't critically engage with its values and, mm. and assess whether these values are in align with your own values or Islamic values. Um, at the same time, I'm not saying that we have to be a different group. We have to be part of this alliance, you know, against anti-racism, anti-Islamophobia, pro-Palestinian, we have to. But also it's a, a responsibility on us to educate ourselves and have the knowledge beforehand, before we have like an empty minds for it to be filled with anything. Mm. You really must have a foundation. Um, and, and again, the left wing movement are very diverse amongst themselves. The good thing about it is that they're very open. So you could actually, as soon as you have knowledge in a specific subject, but so is Mr. Trump. Mr. Mr. Trump's very open. Uh, is he? Yeah, Mr. Trump's. He's the <laughs> most honest American president that we've had in thirty years. That's true. He goes to Syria. He says what he means. Yeah, he said I went to Syria. I took the oil, and we're keeping the oil. And we're we took in the yeah, Saudi oil. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, yeah. we're selling Saudi the weapon. He's honest. He is. So, so, so is honesty a benchmark of? I don't know. Is it a criteria for? Okay, fine. We can we can assess allying ourselves with the different spectrum of the left because honesty isn't necessarily uh, a caveat for alliance because you can find that in the right 
Uh, this is true. This is another thing. Like, um, there are values that the right adhere to are actually in a line with our principles. For Fam- example, family, 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 crime, faith, family, exactly, yeah. family values, faith, and all of this, which is seen as traditional yeah. in in the lenses of the left. But actually, as Muslims, we do put an emphasis a lot on on the family values and faith values. Mm. So it's that's why, as if you're an activist or involved with this movement, you must have knowledge, but also selective approach. Not yeah. everything you see, you take in, but rather take the best of both worlds and yeah. come with your own narrative. This is also another thing. As Muslim, we have been relying on the left-wing movement to fight on our behalf. Yeah. And for me, I find this very, very problematic. Yes, I appreciate them as friends, as alliances, and we have to work together. But the change will never happen unless us as Muslim leading the, leading that change, right? We know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Allah which means God will never change the conditions of people until they change within themselves. Now, how do you want Islamophobia to disappear mm. if you're still relying on left-wing movement mm. to make this happen for you? It will not happen. Mm. That's why we must lead that fight and we must create these alliances, but we have to be at the front line. Okay. So, you know, I'm not going to mention any specific lobby groups yeah. that fall within the kind of uh, the left spectrum, right? Uh, b- simply because I don't want you to get into any trouble after this podcast. But there yeah, are certain... Yeah, but there are certain... <laughs> lo- no, 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 of course I won't. I won't, inshallah. <laughs> I promise you this. But there are one or at least two very influential lobby groups yeah. And they seem, or, or uh, an element within this lobby group, seem to be outspoken on anti-racism, on women's rights, on Islamophobia, on anti-racism. But sadly, it's appearing, and I hope the viewers and listeners can kind of just catch on to who, which lobby groups I'm talking about, without actually mentioning them, is that their alliance or friendship with Muslims seems to be caveated on, I scratch yours, you scratch mine, kind of thing, right? Like we are here with you campaigning against Islamophobia. However, we have an issue when you don't want to kind of perhaps normalize our lifestyles or lifestyle choices or, or however we perceive. So so on a general principle, nothing specific, how should Muslims approach when it comes to activism and campaigning alliances where it's caveated and conditioned like that? That if I do this, you need to be with me on this issue. And this issue which you the other group wants you wants Muslims to stand on is in a direct confliction with their mm. ethical framework and values. Mm. Uh, how do we overcome this? Because I understand yeah. it's very difficult. Uh, okay, yeah. It can be very challenging. It is. Um, because, you ha- because you have a group of mo- non-Muslims who appear to be campaigning for Islamophobia, mm-hmm. who seem to be campaigning on against prevent. Yeah. yeah? But at the same time, they now expect, yeah, even as a good gesture, that the same Muslim that we kind of campaigned for Right, should campaign for our rights and our uh, whatever we believe to be pressing in society. Mm, mm. But then for Muslims, we see it as well, that kind of conflicts with the very things that we believe in. How do we overcome and tackle this issue without causing uh, any, any, any harm or any, any, any further friction? And, and yeah, and I, I okay, so I believe that it can be tricky, but um, I believe that. We, as as Muslims, we have to be against all forms of discrimination. Okay. Right? Um, We have to be against Islamophobia. We have to be against anti-Semitism. We have to be against homophobia. If you're referring to the LGBT lobby, let's let's say it. Um, We might not agree with their lifestyles, 
but I I believe that we should respect it as it is as long as they don't superimpose it on us and okay. I think that's the problem here that if if there's some LGBT groups who superimpose this on mm. us and say right. you very in a very extreme way then I find this problematic but I am for dialogues between mm. both groups mm. uh, they are an ally I see the LGBT group as as an ally because they fight homophobia and Islamophobia um, and uh, and I don't find that a problem as long as nothing is superimposed okay. uh, because I want to strict to my faith uh, and, and my principles. I don't want to superimpose it on others and I expect the same uh, from them. But also we have to appreciate that actually the LGBT lobby is the strongest in the UK without a doubt, right? After the Israeli lobby. Actually, they're stronger than the Israeli state lobby for the main reason that if you were to compare their resources mm. to the uh, Israeli state mm. uh, lobby resources, they have much more less, but they have achieved everything. Agreed. In a very short time. Agreed, agreed. Yeah, 20 years, yeah. they have achieved everything with limited resources. Yeah. The Israeli state lobby, they have... A state machine. Mi- exactly. A global network. million of pounds, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and they're still... So I believe they're the strongest. And some of their tools and tactics can be actually... We can, as, as Muslim, we can learn from to lobby against Islamophobia. Yeah. So we might disagree with Give it. Give me an example. For example, what can we possibly take from the LGBT lobby which we can adopt? For example, in terms of one of the things that they do as one of their tactics is actually um, uh, announcing uh, who are the employers who employ LGBT and they have an assessment uh, of how much percentage mm. of your employees are LGBT and they celebrate that publicly, mm. right? As Muslim, have we ever done that? Have we ever celebrated how many businesses employ Muslim and announce it and make it public? So this is one of the tactics that they use. Another tactic that they use is celebrities endorsement, right? This is one of their lobbyist tactic. As Muslim, have do we have links with celebrities who can talk against Islamophobia vocally or not? You know, this is something we need to think about as 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 a tool. Mm-hmm. Also, one of the things that they do... Would, like, you say, uh, would you say the LGBT lobby and the LGBT kind of uh, agenda or campaign, whatever it may be, is more fashionable to endorse than, let's say, Islamophobia? And they made it that way, didn't they? They were really, really successful now. All, everyone now is, is joining Pride. So, 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 so. <laughs> and I'm not saying that uh, we should do the same, right? So how do you make your work, yeah, uh, anti-Islamophobia activism and campaigning, how do we make that appealing to to celebrity endorsements if that is one of many means or strategies is one to, of many means. Yeah, one of many yeah. money you know for example riz ahmed we know he's a he's a pakistani mm. uh hollywood actor you know he spoke about his frustration 
about giving him terrorist roles all the time. You know, uh, as organization, Muslim organization, have we thought about having celebrities endorsement? Have right. we supported them? Have we got them involved in, in this movement? We have to be clever about it. You know, there isn't one way of right. doing it right. And there's different ways. And I believe there's so much we can learn from the LGBT lobby in terms of their tactics, mm. in terms of their tools specifically okay. to mainstream um, the, the struggle against Islamophobia. Um, moving kind of on to, uh, again, a, a, a statement you made earlier on in this podcast, and that is that one of the colonial uh, French colonial strategies uh, in Algeria, uh, and generally this was even common amongst the British as well, but it was more violently apparent with the French in Algeria, but it was existing amongst different European colonial powers. And that is how the niqab or women's dress issues, Muslim women's dress issues, um, it, it was weaponized. It was weaponized by the colonialists because one of the things that the French came to Muslim women in Algeria said, look, you're, you're oppressed. This is how a liberated free woman is supposed to dress. Mm. And slowly, slowly from the various institutions of power in Algeria, they used to I should peddle this, right? Mm. So I have also found, uh, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, that women's Muslim women's issues appears to have been weaponized and co-opted. For example, there was a magazine recently in the UK which mm. was exposed as a front for the Home Office. Mm. I think it was the Woke magazine. Did you hear about this? It was mm. like it was funded by uh, the Home Office's uh, CVE. Uh, like linked to prevent Yanni mm. and so there was two magazines actually in the last six months which were outed as presented as woke Muslim women's rights issues but mm. it was funded by the Home Office mm. it was funded by prevent it was funded by uh, you know uh, you know sources yeah. linked to counterterrorism mm. right? do you do you do you see this do you see that women's yeah. issues is being weaponized and, yeah. and, and, and anyone but Muslim actual Muslim women are are, are taking a leadership role in this, whereas mm. it's being co-opted by yeah. those who may have nefarious agendas. Yeah, definitely. How do because how do overcome this? because you know one of the meta narratives of uh, Islamophobes that uh, Muslim women is oppressed, Muslim women is facing domestic violence, and you know what they call it, the honor killing. Mm. Honor killing is partner killing. Mm. Yeah, we in Britain, in Britain. Uh, one woman out of seven get killed by her partner. Yes. We don't call it honor killing, right? But if it happened within the Muslim community, we give it a different te term, Absolutely. right? Mm. To to alienate and discriminate against Muslims, right? These issues are universal issues. It's affecting all communities and we have to speak against it. But the Islamophobic narrative it, it suggests that it's inherent. It is actually in the faith that we, that the Muslim have to oppress uh, Muslim, uh, their, their women mm. uh, and propagate these ideas. And sadly, there are institutions of power who capitalize on this to look good, mm. that they're saving the, the Muslim woman who's oppressed. Um, uh, and also to, because they have links with far-right think tanks mm. that propagate these ideas. That's why, though, I believe it's so important to have so many Muslim women in the public sphere with a strong Islamic foundation to mm. challenge that, right? Because you see the Home Office is ad adopting certain type of women with certain type of ideas. Mm. We don't have women who can challenge that as, as many. 
as, as we need. Inshallah, but we need more. <laughs> we, we need more Sahara Khafi, yeah? <laughs> But we need more. That's okay. the truth. Like, we need more outspoken Muslim women with a strong Islamic foundation mm. to, to challenge all these kind of narratives. And I feel that this is far more powerful than anything else. Because I, I find it really, con- really worrying, right? That um, where there are where there's an over-exaggeration, a significantly over-exaggeration, borderlining outright lies of how Muslim women's issues is presented as oppressed, as mm-hmm. those who are victims of all kinds of male-dominated abuse yeah. or whatever, whatever it may be. And not yeah. to say that these things don't happen, but for it, it, I find that it transcends yeah. communities, faiths, races, ethnicities and nationalities. Right? Yeah, there's there's yeah. other issues that contribute to these things. Yeah, but, but the way it's been... You know, dominated, you know, co-opted, and now it's now become a front, yeah. a front of the war on terror and the Islamophobia industry, mm. right? That all of a sudden, a Muslim woman in niqab is automatically perceived as a woman who is oppressed, mm. uh, is seen as a woman who has been forced to wear that clothes or mm. that garment, uh, and and has little to no say about. You need to be saved by white man. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. and 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 this was again. The very fact that there's a white savior complex, yeah, yeah? Or, or a white European colonial savior complex mm. that actually goes very back to the colonial period where yeah. the French, for whatever nefarious agenda, felt that the Algerian Muslim women needed rescuing. And mm. one, one, one way to rescue them was to unclothe them from wearing the niqab. Mm. Um, any advice you have to Muslim women, Muslim sisters, mm. students who are engaged in activism, mm. who are engaged in these issues? For them to kind of, you know, how would you navigate around seeing these red flags? And Mm. are you even able to see these red flags? Yeah, definitely. You have to critically think with everything. And you also have to emphasize on your Islamic knowledge and foundation. But then uh, communicate your knowledge using a universal language. And this is, I think, as as Muslim, whether you're activist or or a leader or, or whatever, we slightly fail on this. Like we do have sometimes strong foundation, but we don't communicate it in a language that the wider public understand. You know, we, we could argue that you should maybe use even a secular language, yeah, right, just to allow this message to, to disseminate, to tackle that. For the Muslim sisters specific, spe- specifically, always say that you have to be confident within your identity, yeah? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed you with the faith that protects you and protects your rights and and so on do not be afraid of expressing your faith whether by wearing the hijab or 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 the niqab or you know praying five times a day in in the working place communicate all your needs clearly Mm. right and do not be afraid of 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 the fear of uh don't be afraid of seclusion or 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 any of that and uh, I, I genuinely feel that sincerity is everything. Like if you are sincere in what you're trying to achieve and you ask the question why you do it, then you're more likely to carry on on that path. Inshallah. So going back to uh, the concluding topic of discussion uh, today, uh, and that is um, Saudi Arabia. Yeah. It was a country which I mentioned to you at the start of the podcast and you described it verbatim the same as Israel. Now, Saudi Arabia is 
its trajectory of the last three years is going towards a very worrying direction, right? Mm. That's not to say that prior to Crown Prince Mohammed bin mm. Salman, everything was hunky-dory. Mm. No, it absolutely wasn't. Yeah, um, it's that things have become more apparent. True. Um, increasing number of ulama, mm. uh, some who are even supportive of the state, are now mm. finding themselves in prison. True. Uh, but at the same time, activists of different ideological persuasions are also finding themselves in, in prison, prison, incarcerated, uh, capital punishment and so forth. Correct. So this notion that Mohammed bin Salman's new modern Saudi Arabia mm. is a, a kind of a shift towards uh, more uh, Western ideal of what Saudi Arabia should be. How true do you think that is? It is absolutely true. You described it really well. Uh, a lot when M MBS came to power, a lot of the Western uh, countries thought this is it, you know, he's going to bring the change, he will open the country, he will modernize it and all of that. The truth is uh, the state has become autocratic more than ever before. It is worse than ever before. At least you had a family w that had different type of powers in their hand and they manage different aspects of the state. But now we have MBS rolling absolutely everything. Mm. And this has never happened before. But also the crackdown on all the activists from across the spectrum. You have secular, liberal, you have conservative, Salafi, Sufi, all of them now in prison. If you were to speak for Palestine in a tweet of 140 character, uh, characters, you can get to prison for that. Um, and it's very, very sad to see. But also there's a new phenomenon that we have not seen before, which is the hyper-nationalization mm. of Saudi. Mm. Before, it used to be that uh, um, let's say 20 or 25 years ago, it was haram in Saudi to celebrate a national day mm. of uh, establishing the Saudi uh, Saudi Arabia as, as a state. It was haram. You know, the scholars, they were telling us haram is only Eid al-Adha, is only mm. Eid al-Fitr and so on. And then a few years ago, it became halal, mm. right? Let's celebrate it. Um, and it's fine. But now it, gets, it got much worse. Now you're forced there's the, you're forced to celebrate it. You're forced to have this kind of hyper-nationalist identity that if you're Saudi, you're good and anyone else is below you. And in fact, there is this slogan that sadly you hear a lot, which says, um, if you're Saudi, you're superior and anyone else is below you. And that was accepted. There was, it was a song. It was song to be sang everywhere. And now this kind of ideas are more accepted than ever before. Before um, national, nationalization uh, or what they call it, uh, this um, Arab identity was even rejected, that it shouldn't be even uh, celebrated and valued as, as an Arab. It's because a form of, cause it's a form of Asabiya. A form of Asabiya yeah. and, and so on. But there was a political element to that. It was in the 60s, you know, we had Jamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt and, and he's seen as a pan-Arabist mm. uh, calling for an Arab identity as yes. a unifying yeah, yeah. tool to do that. And that time, the Saudi scholars says, is haram. It's haram, it's godless, it's communist. Yes, yes, all yes. of that, right? Um, and now, because we don't have Jamal Abdel Nasser anymore, we don't have 
pan-Arabism as, as a fashionable uh, we, have, we, have uh, Muslimin, <laughs> we have we have the Muslim brother <laughs> now and now the Muslim brother is, is the boogeyman yeah. now like scaring everyone but yeah you, there's a new phenomenon now that if you're a Saudi we will open the doors for you mm. if you're not you're not welcome and it's very sad because now you see some family of um, families of Yemeni descent or uh, Ethiopian descent who lived in Saudi Arabia for 40, 50 years being deported. Subhanallah. And it's very sad because they're, they're in their culture and their tradition and the language, they're Saudi. Like there's no difference between them and, and, and you know, anyone right. else. Uh, but there's a hope because uh, now there is a, a new movement in Saudi. You might not hear about it in the media, but there's a civil rights movement uh, starting to... Um, increase because people are frustrated about the polarization mm. of of the Saudi nation. You mm. you have you have either the very extreme militant people, Qaeda like, mm. who say the only way to change is actually to go to overthrow Saudi Arabia, mm. uh, the regime, and all of that. Or the very secular liberal who says the only way forward is to adopt the Westerns uh, in everything they do. Now, there is a civil rights movement in the middle that says we shouldn't really overthrow the regime or we shouldn't adopt all the Western mm. ethos and, mm. and, um, uh, and ideas, but let's have a, a civil state. Let's mm. call for a constitutional monarchy. And this is now what you hear about, and mm. and it's quite refreshing. It gives okay. me a lot of hope. And however, there is a worrying trend that many youth, uh, Saudi youth, again, I can't substantiate it with statistics, uh, unfortunately, but there appears to be, or at least what's being fed to us, that there are many within the kind of sixteen to thirty age group, yeah, that seem to be supportive of uh, MBS's new yeah. modernization reforms, yeah. these new kind of concerts like Jeddah. These, yeah. yeah, you know, you know, it, yeah, even though even though Nicki Minaj said no, Beyonce <laughs> believe yeah, it. <laughs> Fifty Cent went ahead, and 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 Beyonce went ahead, and many others went ahead. So, <laughs> yeah. and, and you know, now you're seeing yeah. like raves happening in Jeddah. The biggest electro rave took place. Yeah. Um, and, and Saudi youth, or at least a significant portion of Saudi youth, have taken to this, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so, just just give me your th- where the hell is MBS's new vision of Saudi going? Because on the one hand, mm. you've got an increased imprisonment of ulama and activists, and even members of his own family. Yeah. Then you've got this open normalization now with Israel. You yeah. know, you know, True. you know, and but then at the same time. You've got concerts, you've got cultural tourism, which now has massive uh, uh, monsters of shayateen going through because of Halloween. And yeah. you've got all kinds of things that would have been unforeseeable in a yeah. conservative Saudi or the Salafi state, mm, right? Mm. Where is this going? Like, why and where is it going? Because there's so much yeah. happening. Yeah, MBS does that deliberately. So there's an emphasis on entertainment. Uh, sector there is a ministry of entertainment yeah which mm. is funny like there isn't any country that has a ministry of uh, of entertainment right but there is a, a, a reason behind that now over 50 percent of the saudi population are less than 24 years old mm. right our pa- uh, saudi parliament is actually twitter yeah this is what we call twitter is the saudi parliament why what, that, what does that mean it means that because we don't have any medium to express our views. Twitter is that platform. Exactly. 
So you see that hashtags coming from Saudi all the time, calling for better jobs, calling mm. uh, for a movement to against MBS, criticizing the entertainment. Yes, most of them using fake accounts, fake names, but there is a huge movement on Twitter mm. that calls for, for, for a change because Twitter is seen as, as the parliament. But also, Saudi Arabia is the fourth biggest country in the world that uses Twitter. And who uses Twitter is the young people. Mm. Now, how can you get the young people busy with something else so they don't see what's happening in the world? Let, let's bombard them with entertainment, with concerts, with festivals, with music, mm. right? So they don't think of making a real reform changes of allowing people to have their own freedom of expression, assembly and movement, mm. you know, so to to numb them. It's like a drug to numb them from speaking against why some scholars are, are being in prisons. And in fact, you know, Sheikh Salman al-Auda, he's a he's a he's considered to be one of the most modern a mo mo moderate middle grounded middle grounded yeah. scholar. But a lot of young people listen to him. May Allah and hasten his release, inshallah. And that's why, he, inshallah, yeah. that's why he is in prison. So it's deliberate. The yeah. focus and the emphasis on the entertainment is deliberate. Uh, but also, this is something I came across recently. Um, the education system uh, or the education curriculum has changed massively. One of the things that they've actually the changed, it, it, one of the things they've actually changed, so... It, let's put aside the fact that how the Saudi state came about. Let's put that aside. We know yeah. that there was a collusion with the British against the Uthmani Khilaf. Well, let's pull that. But they are now changing even the wording of Ottoman history in their texts. So it's no longer Dawlat al-Uthmaniya or, 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 the, or the Ottoman Caliphate. Yeah. It's now Ottoman occupation. You, were you aware of this? <laughs> they, they made, they made, no, they've made yeah. this change now yeah, in, yeah. In, in children's books. Yeah, yeah. So how does this fall how does this specific yeah. issue about Ottomanism, how does this affect, or how is this part of MBS's new vision? They see Turkey as a threat, simple as, yeah. because, you know, also a lot of, uh, that's why Turkish series now are actually banned yeah. from being broadcasted and, and, and so did channel, channels. But this is not the only change that happened in, in the curriculum. Far worse is actually the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So, um, back in the days it was part of the curriculum and you get tested on how the Israeli state started uh, what what are the steps that they took why is it the Palestinian oh, rights to go back uh, uh, to, to return and why are they occupied and all of that this completely wiped off so it's it's you could say it's a preparation step for further normalization with the Israelis and again you're focusing on young people now a lot of young people rely on this uh, kind of educational curriculum to gain knowledge but now is wiped off so That's they dangerous. don't now very dangerous. dangerous now you ask a, a Saudi 14 years old what is your views on Palestine mm. I was like we don't know they know absolutely nothing they only rely on YouTube they only rely on the entertainment and there's no source of knowledge for them to access and is very very dangerous but that then that links because because if you're telling me that it was part of Saudi curriculum to understand how the the Israeli entity uh, came into birth it actually then will date back to Ottoman history because 
Oh the, yes. It, it naturally does because yes. the Dawlat al Uthmani, the Ottomans, they were defeated, yeah. right? And then it came, the Palestine came under the British mandate. Yeah. And then obviously, then Correct. it was handed over uh, to the Zionists, Correct. right? So I do believe this is all. It's literally rewriting history. Yeah. Isn't it? Definitely. And and so, how does this? Reality fall into what you mentioned earlier in the podcast as the global Islamophobia industry. Does Saudi have a role in this, in the global Islamophobia yes, industry? Yes, I, I do. I truly believe that Saudi and also the UAE specifically, yeah. they play a role in this big um, Islamophobic multi-million pound industry. We know there's actually Saudi and UAE officials, they have good relationship with neocons. Yeah. Uh, we know that they crack down on the Muslim Brotherhood Um or any organization that linked to them in Britain mm. came at the at the back of reports that was published by uh, the the British amb- ambassador to mm. Saudi Arabia because mm. of that links. Uh, and I guess because this all of these things happened mainly after 2011 mm. when the Arab Spring, Spring started and Saudi Arabia feels threatened by all the revolutions around them. So now they're investing a lot of money on counter revolution, whether by supporting Sisi in Egypt or Haftar in, in Libya or mm. or uh, certain Lebanese parties mm. uh, over others and so on. And they put in a lot of money on into this. Um, and they do have links with the neocon and far-right pro-war organizations who actually make a lot of money from destabilizing the Middle East. That's but what, the truth. But one would argue then that, at least perhaps not Saudi Arabia yet, but at least the UAE, they're hosting peace forums and forums between... Oh, don't uh, get me into uh, that. No, 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 but it's true. It's true. angers me. One of the things that you hear is that, hey, hold on, you might say X, Y, and Z about the UAE, but they yeah. seem to be holding the most biggest and glitziest forums be- calling for peace between yeah. the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims. Yeah. You know, so... I mean, I am all for calling for peace between these different faith and, and non-faith. Definitely, we need that. But that you, the UAE has a certain agenda. Yeah. You know, you can't support peace conferences here and then bomb the Yemenis mm. um, in, in the south, right? Yeah. It's, there's a conflict here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming <laughs> on and, and giving us uh, your time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but before I close the podcast, uh, our viewers and our listeners will know uh, that generally with male guests, uh, I challenge them, or, me, or my brother, who is yeah. a co-host, we challenge them to an arm wrestle or to a thumb wall, which of course, <laughs> for obvious reasons, that cannot happen. Nope, not uh, even virtually. Yeah, not even virtually, no. So what I do have for you yeah. uh, is some Bengali delicacy. Uh-huh. Right? Uh, it's called pan. Right? Pan, okay. Yeah, now, I know you, it's not meat. Uh, okay. it's, it's, it's some nut and leaf and some rose petal. So it's quite sweet. Would you mind trying some? Yeah, what kind of nuts though? Uh, beetle nut. So it has nothing to do with beetles. You sure? Yeah. yeah. Well, come on, come no on. meat, no insects. No, no, no meat, no insects, right? If you don't like it, you can... And you have to fold it. Yeah, you have to fold it. I'm okay. not... I'm, so here it is. Oh my goodness. Can I have a tissue beforehand? Okay. Just uh, if I had to spit it out. Okay. Uh, <laughs> off camera, we won't film. If you do have to spit it out, you can spit it out there. So bismillah. In here, is it? Yeah, I'll clean it. Don't okay, worry. Okay, bismillah. bismillah. <laughs> I'm too scared. No, no, try it. Bismillah. I, I would never trick you. I mean... What do you think? Carry on chewing. The Wallahi, it's halal. <laughs> it's halal. I would never give you something. You're lying. <laughs> no, 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 no. Come on. It's fine, man. <laughs> okay. 
Mm, why one. is it so hard to eat? Because it's nut and leaf and rose petal. Mm. Okay. Mm. okay. No. Okay, do you like it? No. Okay, there's some more to oh, it. So, gosh, so, sorry. So while Sister Sahar uh, oh. re- recomposes herself, uh, brothers Sorry and to all my Bangladeshi friends, sisters yeah. and brothers. <laughs> I appreciate you. But I appreciate your delicacy. <laughs> um, uh, Sister Sahar, honestly, it was an honour. Mm-hmm. Thank you for coming on. I'll uh, never come again if you give me this. No, no, I won't. Next time. Okay. Next, next time I'll give you something called shudki, shudki shira. What is this? It's like dry fish. Oh, it's really no. smelly. No. <laughs> and then we can talk about the permissibility of voting over this. No, 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 no. Okay. Look, thank okay. you again, no and uh, may Allah bless you and your work. Uh, yeah. May Allah accept it from you, and I hope that the nasiha that you gave uh, in today's podcast is of benefit uh, to Muslims and especially uh, women folk who are engaged or are thinking about getting themselves involved in activism. Thank you very much. Jazakallah khair for having me. Thank you. Brothers and sisters, that's all for today. Um, For those of you who are listening or watching in from the United States or Canada, remember to subscribe to the Mad Mumluks channel. And if you want to hear this podcast on the audio platforms, just search the Mad Mumluks. And for those of you from UK and Europe, subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel and leave a comment. It doesn't even have to be a good comment. Just leave a comment, uh, like the video, share the video. And until next time, Assalamu Alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Black Burma's podcast of the Five Pillars of Mad Monarchs production.